This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks the next New York Marathon should all be on scooters, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Corey Johnson, the Speaker of the New York City Council. He's been in that role since 2018 and represents a chunk of Western Manhattan that includes Times Square, Hudson Square, and Hell's Kitchen. It's also an area rooted to be the new tech center of New York. I wanted to have him on the show in part because last year he led a $1.7 billion initiative to expand bike lanes and reduce on-street parking. I've written a lot about the future of cars in our lives, and it's an especially difficult question in a crowded city New York. I also want to talk about how you make New York into a tech center to compete with Silicon Valley. I also want to have him on because I've known him for how long? 20 years? 20 years I met since I was— Corey Johnson when he was 17, yeah, and now he I may become the mayor of New York. <laughs> Which means I will have parking wherever <laughs> I want someday. All right, Corey, welcome to Recode Decode. Oh my God, it's so great to see you. Do Happy I have New to Year. call you Speaker? No, Corey. Corey. Okay, all right. Corey. Do people call you that? Uh, yeah, some people call me Speaker. Really? Yeah. Do they say that? I say that to Pelosi. I mean, I say, yeah. I say Speaker. Madam Speaker. I don't say it. When, I don't say Pelosi to her. <laughs> yeah. Madam Speaker. Yes, exactly, yeah. Madam Speaker. So anyway, let's get started a little bit about your background. We did actually meet when you were seventeen in yes. San Francisco in sort of the heyday. Of the dot-com boom. It yes. was. What was it in the ni- late in 1999 we yeah. met. And I was— I was. It was top of the top of the hill for that. Yeah. I was uh, living in this little tiny town 30 miles north of Boston where I was mm-hmm. born and raised. 3,000 people. And I met you because I came out my junior year in high school. I was mm-hmm. captain of my high school football team. Right. And when I came out, I was lucky enough that my family and my team were supportive of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came out about six months after Matthew Shepard had been— murdered in Wyoming. And my story was sort of a positive counterpoint to that, where this small town rallied around me, Mm -hmm. my football team rallied around me, and uh, my story was in the front page of the Sunday New York Times uh, on my 18th birthday. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I met this uh, gentleman who you know and I know named Tom Riley, Mm -hmm. who was the founder of PlanetOut.com. And uh, he brought me to San Francisco. It was my first time I ever left New England. Uh And in my first two days there, I met 
met you and uh, Megan Smith right. and some other great folks. Who were at Planet Out. Megan Planet was up. my ex-wife. Yes. She also became the CTO of America. Yes. Um, but they ran Planet Out, which was a groundbreaking company. It really was. In the in the, in the the early days of the internet, it was uh, supported by AOL and some others. And there were a whole spade of companies. And it was kind of heady. It was crazy then. And, you know, everybody was, like I was saying, we met Jeff Bezos when he was nothing. We met all the, the Google guys weren't even the Google guys before. They weren't even existing. And it's point. a crazy story how I met Tom Riley, who's yeah. the founder, which was I used to, when I was 15, 16 years old and I was closeted and uh, suicidal and depressed, I would mm-hmm. log into AOL chat rooms right. and try to find other teenagers my own age to communicate with. And in those chat rooms, there would be in Planet Out chat rooms, which had that partnership with AOL, sure. as you said, it would say PNO Megan was the screen name or PNO Tom. Mm-hmm. And I clicked on PNO Tom and it said founder of planetout.com. So I sent him a message that said, hi, my name's Corey. I'm the captain of my football team in the small town and I want to come out, but I don't know how to. And he wrote me back and said, you're the captain of your football team and you want to come out? This was 20 years ago, 1999. Yeah. I said, yes. Very difficult. So he got on the phone with me and he flew to Massachusetts, met with my family, helped orchestrate my Amazing. coming out. And then I came to San Francisco and that's how I met you. Yeah. So 20 years Why later. Why didn't you go into the dot-com thing? Why? What did you do? What, did, what happened to you? I didn't, like, I saw you around and then you, now you're here doing this, now which I'm is here. crazy. Yeah, I moved to New York in 2001, mm-hmm. May of 2001. I was in San Francisco mm-hmm. for about a year and I came here to get involved in community organizing and politics. Mm -hmm. Why here? Why New York? Because when I visited New York City, I love San Francisco, but when I visited New York City, there was something immediate about it. It's your hometown. I just saw The Inheritance, part one and two. It took 67 years to see it. but um, (laughs) I have to see it. (laughs) It's long. It's long. I have to pick a Sunday to go see it. Get a sandwich and go for it. But that was one of the lines. New York is my home day. I'm from Alabama. That's how I feel. New York is my hometown. That's how I feel. When I came here, I immediately felt beckoned and I connected with the energy, the frenetic energy of New York Mm City. And so I wanted to live here. So I moved here at 19, called it my home, got involved in local politics, was appointed to my local community board, which is the most grassroots level of government here in New York City. I was 23 years old, mm-hmm. worked my way up the board, became the chair at 28 years old, the youngest community board chair in the city, ran for the city council at 31 years old and won, ran for speaker at 35 years old and won. Today I'm 37 years old and I'm running for mayor. If right. I win in You're two in years, lead, I'll be 39 right? years old. You, um, is it correct? You, no, uh, I don't know if I'm in the lead. I, I think I know, I've Seriously, I don't yeah. know. There's no way to know. Well, it's interesting. It's There's like interesting four t- major contenders right. that are running right now. I'm one of them. We'll see what happens. Yeah. It's so crazy. it's interesting. So you, 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 what got you into the community? Organize? What, what was the impetus? You just felt like it was important to politically organize or because of your coming out? or You know, when I came out and I got a speaking agent, I flew 100,000 miles in mm-hmm. that year that I met you telling my story from St. Louis to Let's Miami. Stress, nobody told these stories then. Now everyone's gay. Now everyone's <laughs> Everyone's gay, yes. Right, yeah. There's so many gay stories and everything else, but there weren't. There was. A, I remember that story. It was gripping. I became like the gay poster child, mm-hmm. and uh, Creative Artist Agency became my agents, mm-hmm. and they were selling my life rights. I got a literary agent. I had a speaking agent, and all of a sudden, I went from growing up in public housing in this 3,000-person town mm-hmm. to traveling the HRC dinner circuit, Human right. Rights Campaign dinner circuit, yeah. all across the country. And when I got to New York, I had been doing that for about 14 months, and I said— I don't want to be just a gay football player. Right. I want to go do something else with my life. Right. And so I didn't end up selling my life rights. I didn't write uh, the book. I stopped doing the speaking engagements. And I <laughs> said, I'm going to start out on the ground floor, try to get involved in politics in New York City. And that's what I did. I started what were your big up- concerns at the beginning? And what, what have they shaped into? My big concerns about yeah. politically? Yeah. 
Well, you know. How many mayors did you go through? You went through I've been through, no, just through, well, I moved here at the end of Giuliani in 2001, Mm -hmm. and then I was here for 12 years at Bloomberg. So that was medium crazy Giuliani, right? Uh, Yeah, he was really unpopular until 9-11 happened. Yeah, he was. Uh, People were ready for him to leave, and then 9-11 happened, and he was able to rehabilitate himself, and now we know how crazy he is. Uh, And so, um, and then I've worked with this mayor for six years, four as a member, and the last two years leading the city council. before that, Bloomberg. And before that, it was Bloomberg when uh-huh. I was on the community board all those years. Yeah. And, you know, when I moved here, it was really just before 9-11. And then 9-11 happened, and then the city had to rebound mm-hmm. from uh, one of the greatest tragedies our country's seen. And so to live through that and to live through New York kind of rising out of those ashes mm-hmm. was an important thing. But now I think what we're seeing is— Kara, if we were sitting in Omaha, Nebraska, and someone handed us a piece of paper, mm-hmm. and on the piece of paper it said, New York City by the numbers, unemployment at 4.1%, the lowest mm-hmm. number ever recorded, 780,000 cra- private sector jobs created since the Great Recession in 2009, 67 million tourists visited New York City in 2018, the highest number ever recorded. The city's budget from when I was elected in 2013 was $74 billion a year, and now the budget we're voting on in June is $94 billion mm-hmm. a year. $22 billion of revenue growth. is big. We're the fifth biggest uh, budget in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. The only thing that are bigger are New York, California, Texas, and the federal government. That's it. We have a bigger budget than Florida. Right. And uh, crime numbers, the lowest number of homicides since 1951. So if you didn't live in New York City and someone handed you that piece of paper and said, this is a state of play in New York City, you would think, hot damn, New York City's doing really well. Right. But if you live here, if you live in this city, you know there are significant challenges one of the largest homeless populations in the United States of America, uh, aging and crumbling infrastructure, uh, the subways that are falling Which has apart. Been one of your subways and transportation. We'll get into that in a second, but go ahead. Uh, you have uh, the most decent, we have the most segregated school system in the United States of America, New York City, and you have public housing where 450,000 New Yorkers call home that is literally crumbling before our very eyes. So the challenges are And a immense. criminal justice system. You've been working on Riker. Like closing Rikers Island, mm-hmm. uh, which I think has been a success story. So those are, you know, if, if you if you didn't live here, you would think, wow, New York's doing really well if you saw that on a piece of paper. If you live here, you would think, wow, there are very significant and serious challenges mm-hmm. for the future of the largest city in the United States of America. Well, it's also not in similar to San Francisco. The, the numbers are so high in terms of income and yes. everything and housing. That it's, everything's going up there. And then you have the very dire situation on the street. It's. I was just there, and it's actually improved slightly, but it's certainly has changed from when you were there, for sure. I think you'd be shocked to see San Francisco. But at the same time, there's so much promise. The same, the same idea of that, and yet there's still the income inequality is so is more severe than ever. The education system, the infrastructure, same issues of all big cities. And you would think that in a place like San Francisco or a place like New York City, mm-hmm. with the immense amount of wealth that is concentrated in both cities and the uh, the really high number of entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. creative types, that on some of these issues, we'd be able to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. We'd be able to come up with solutions and, and and use the city as a laboratory in some ways to test some ideas to see if they work. And government's not really good at that. It's interesting that, you know, I think of that a lot. You know, I thought about running for mayor of San Francisco, but I'm, I just had a baby again. I can't really do that at this moment. But they, one of the things that's 
interesting about it when I was thinking about it is the way you have to think about cities is what is the new city? What is the idea of a new city? And who is going to just sort of set down some, like, what's the car? I'm going to have a carless city. We're going to have, make some choices which are being made in Europe. There's a lot of experimentation and really interesting stuff. Um, for those who don't know, most demographers feel like, uh, have predicted that most people will be living in these megacities uh, in the next 50 years. Like, there'll be there'll be a small concentration of people living outside the city. So it presents a lot of, uh, of living challenges, many of which have technological issues, like how to get around, transportation, and such. And that's one thing you've been leading. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the $1.7 billion for the, for the bike lanes, for example. Let's talk about transportation and and how to what how you're doing. I had an interview with uh, I don't know if he's, he's apparently you haven't talked to him for 17 years. You, can you talk about that or Bill De Blasio, the mayor? Bill De Blasio. Yes. So yeah, he and I have to have a working relationship together. Yeah, right. Do you have one? Yeah, we have one. I mean, we don't agree on everything. Right. And, um, you know, I think there are still some significant things that he has to get done in his final two years. Mm -hmm. And on this bill that you're talking about, which we passed three months ago, right. which was my bill. Explain the bill. Explain sure. the bill. So the bill uh, calls for a master plan for our city streets and sidewalks. What does that mean? Right now in New York City, everything's done in a piecemeal approach. It is. If you get a bike lane, if you get a bus lane, if you get a pedestrian plaza, it's done in a way. It makes no sense It makes together. no sense. There's yeah, no— It's not it's, systemic. Yeah, totally. Just like San Francisco. Totally. And so what— Although plenty more of them. Plenty more of them, yes. Lots of them. And what this bill says is instead of doing it in this piecemeal way, the city's going to have to come up with every five years a master plan for city streets. And in that master plan, we're going to require the city of New York, the Department of Transportation, to build 250 miles of protected bike lanes, mm -hmm. 150 miles of protected bus lanes, 1 million square feet of additional pedestrianization, pedestrian plazas, 1,000 intersections sections with transit signal priority where buses get to move before cars to speed them up, uh, leading intervals for pedestrians, all the things that we know mm -hmm. work to make the city safer. Sure. There are 8.6 million people who live in New York City. That doesn't count the tourists and the mm -hmm. people that commute to work here. And out of the 8.6 million people who live here, only 1.6 million of them own a car. Right. And how much do you take of city streets? What was the number? It was there, some there are 3 million mm -hmm. free parking spaces. Yeah. On city streets. So 3 million free parking spaces for 1.7 million people who own cars. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is reorient how we use public space mm -hmm. by saying, number one, we're in the middle of a climate catastrophe and we need to improve mass transit. Number two, it's a safety issue. This year, we had 30 cyclists who were killed on the streets mm -hmm. of New York City up to the previous year when it was 10 people. So a 300% increase, over 200 pedestrians were killed across mm -hmm. New York City. Oslo last year had zero people killed on their streets. Mm -hmm. Oslo's not New York City. We know that. But we also know that, as you said, cities around the world, you look at what the mayor of Paris is doing yeah. on reorienting their streets away from cars and more towards bikes and pedestrians and mass transit and buses. I just got back from Buenos Aires. I was there over Christmas and New Year's. Mm -hmm. The way they do their bus network mm -hmm. is amazing. We need to look at what other cities are doing around so the world. what prevents it? Because I think it was 75% of the streets are occupied 
by cars, like yes. cars. And I think it was that number. And then someone was complaining when you did, and including de Blasio, is like older people. I was like, you know what? Why do they get 75%? Like, I get it. But they were complaining over the percentage that you were taking, which was a small amount. Um, how do you change people's minds on that? Either you have a lot of arguments here. You have climate change. Mm-hmm. You've got safety. Mm-hmm. You've got this is the way it's going to—you can't have this many cars. You just—it can't happen. And that it doesn't meet the needs of most people who live here. And yet, what's the, what's the problem? Well, people have tried to frame this, not me. I think <laughs> some folks in the media and also people that don't like what I've been trying to do— mm-hmm as a war on cars. Right. And it's not really that because the hope is if you improve mass transit, if, if for folks that are listening that don't live in New York City, you know, if you visited New York City, you know we have a 24-7 subway it's system. It's great, except it's, it's in terrible disrepair. Exactly. It's great, though. Exactly. It's, I was just in wonderment about it the other day, looking at a really decrepit station because it was, you know, there was leaks and you mm-hmm. could t- the dangerous thing, like dangerous. And I was like, but this is amazing, like, what they've done here. Like, it's an astonishing, you know, we have less good transit in New York, in San Francisco. It's it's not bad, though, for, for a city, and we're building another new line that goes down to the water. But it was uh, it was really, it really is amazing and depressing at the same time. See, we can't even have that conversation about right. building another line because right. the subways are always in a state of emergency here. Mm-hmm. And the number one thing we need to do to, I think, get people out of cars is you have to improve mass transit. You need mm-hmm. to improve the subways so that they actually run on time. And you need to improve the buses to speed them up. If you do those two things, I think there are a certain number of New Yorkers who would abandon their cars because it's mm-hmm. not— uh, inexpensive or affordable to have a car in New York City. It's not fun to always try to find parking. It's expensive to park in a private lot. You get a lot of parking tickets. So if you improve mass transit, you hopefully incentivize people to give up their cars. But for folks that do need their car, some with a disability, someone who lives in a part of the city where the subways don't reach to and they need their car for a certain reason, you want to make sure that you are building this type of streets that are going to get people around safely and efficiently. Right. The way the streets are set up in New York City is really from the bygone era of Robert Moses, Mm -hmm. who was the master builder who really shaped the New York that we know today. And we need to move away from that and move towards a city that that, that makes sense in this way. When Mayor Bloomberg was leaving as mayor, he put in those pedestrian plazas in Times Square. Mm -hmm. And everyone said, you were going to ruin Times Square. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. Now everyone says— Oh, wow, we were wrong. They're great. Right. No one likes change. Or the High Line or like lots of things. No one likes change. Right. But once you do something and it proves successful, Mm -hmm. then people wrap their head around it. In a city of tens of thousands of individual blocks, hundreds of distinct and unique neighborhoods, and I say this in a loving way towards my fellow New Yorkers, New Yorkers are very, very, very parochial. Mm-hmm. They care about their local neighborhood and their local block. Yeah. And so when you're going to tell them you're going to change it, they don't like that. But once you change it and everything's okay, right. it shows well, that these things actually One work. of the things that's interesting with this, to me, this particular, you know, I wrote two columns about getting rid of my cars. I don't have a car. And I, I use cars. That's not, that's very different. I had, I've been having an ongoing debate with a lot of people in rural areas. I'm like, keep your trucks for now. 
but by the way, you're also going to get automated cars. I said, but I'm just on the cutting edge of what's happening, what's going to happen. And if I don't own it, then I don't have to think about it. That's like, right. I don't have to, and it wasn't to save money or anything. It's just like, it's not, on, for lots of reasons, not just climate change, but that's one of the many pluses of it. It's that the, the cost, the it's just not the way people should be getting around individually in cars. One of the issues is this systemic, not being a systemic solution. So that's why it doesn't work very well. That's why it seems so haphazard and patchwork, like a lot of things, by the way. That's not, that's how cities, especially in New York, grow up. You can be in one area of the city that used to be a different area of the city that wasn't like the way it is. That's that's New York is to me all the time is constant change. When I lived here, David Dinkins was president when I was a kid, and it was bad. And there were certain areas that you just didn't go into, which are now high rent areas, mm-hmm. which is interesting. So when you think about doing this, it's beyond bike lanes because you have to have a lot of ways. Mass transit. Now, scooters haven't gotten here. Now, Mayor de Blasio was like, no scooters ever. There was a bill to legalize e-bikes and scooters that the state legislature passed. There are e-bikes on the streets. There are e-bikes that are illegal, but that are used. Uh, There was a bill to uh, legalize e-bikes and e-scooters that the state legislature passed, and three weeks ago, the governor vetoed that bill. Mm -hmm. And so the bill would have said that scooters could be allowed not in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. but in the other four boroughs. I have concerns about scooters, which is that in— So is the mayor of— Paris, and so I wrote a piece about being there and that. The and fight. what do you think about scooters? Well, I think they get them under control after a while. I think there's an initial period of chaos, and then it actually gets in under control. It's very much in control in Washington, D.C., I think, although some people don't think so, but I do. I think eventually these companies shake out, and they're very efficient ways of getting around. Yeah. You know, I was except in- the streets are terrible. You know, the streets are so bumpy exactly. and so, such a mess. I was in, if they're bike, when they're bike lanes, I'm thrilled. I was in uh, Mexico City in mm-hmm. April mm-hmm. for four days of my birthday, and I hopped on one of the uh, e-scooters. Helmet. I wasn't wearing a helmet. Bad and I hit a bad, like, uneven patch. Put your feet up. And I wiped out and face-planted right. in the middle of yes, this big street. Yeah. And I was thinking, if there was a car behind me and I face-planted, I would have gone out and run over. Yeah. Yeah, so you've got bike me. lanes are the answer, but bike or lanes. specific lanes. Then it becomes good bike lanes becomes a very delightful thing, and there's lots. Of, I'll teach you tricks about scooter riding because I ride them all the time. You and Elon Musk think they're he thinks they're undignified. That's his issue with them. <laughs> I don't but, think that. But, I'm worried about in a city as yeah. busy as yes, this. Yes, New York. It may be. It may be challenging. Yeah. It may be challenging in the city to have those there because your streets are not in as good shape as they need to be. So this, like, when is this going to be? Uh, rolled out this multi-billion dollar. So and what the, are the, the the challenges to it? So with the $1.7 billion plan that, that we passed, the Master Streets plan, only 3% of that money actually goes towards bike lanes. Mm-hmm. The other, the 97% of it is actually going towards uh, bus lanes and totally changing uh, street corners and, and putting in pedestrian islands and pedestrianization. That's what most of the money goes towards. And the plan goes into effect at the end of 2021, mm-hmm. and then it becomes a five-year plan. And so in uh, December of 2021, over the next two years, the Department of Transportation's going to have to put that five-year plan together. In December of 2021, it goes into effect, and then they have five years to actually build all the things that mm-hmm. I just mentioned, 250 miles of protected uh, bike lanes, 150 miles of protected bus lanes, a million square feet of pedestrianization, uh, safe intersections, all of that. And then they'll have to do basically two five-year plans to cover the 
the entire city. So instead of having this haphazard, uh, non-systemic way of planning our streets, we are now going to finally have a mm-hmm. master plan-like plan that will get this done. So this mayor won't do it. He'll he'll put the plan together. The next mayor is going to actually have to execute the plan. Execute the plan. All right, we're here with Corey Johnson. He's the Speaker of the New York City Council. We're talking about transportation. When we get back, we're going to talk about other ways of transportation, including Lyft, Uber, and maybe we'll get into Airbnb in a second. Uh, we'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. We're here with Corey Johnson. He's the speaker of the New York City Council. He's also going to be running for mayor. Um, and he's just recently led a $1.7 billion initiative to expand bike lanes and reduce on-street parking and help buses about. And I, obviously, the future of cars is a big uh, topic for me. In fact, the future of not having cars, not owning cars. Um, when you think of the city, obviously, transportation is at the center of it. And it does, you, know, you look, again, you look at European cities and they use streetcars and things like that. Scooters you're not so much for. What about the the prevalence of these Ubers and the privatization of this stuff? Now, I know Uber's been trying to take over payments for public transportation. You have Lyft in here. They've had such a struggle in New York, and and obviously now in London they're barred. Um, How do you look at that, the growth of that now, years later? You know, they're economically challenged, obviously, uh, right now. You can see it on Wall Street. How do you look at the idea of it? Because a lot of people feel, oh, finally, I've got some— good way to get around, especially if you're a person of color or something else. So how do you look at that now, years later? Look, I think that part of the reason why Uber was uber successful (laughs) in New York City is because for so long, the government-controlled and regulated yellow taxi cartel, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't able to... um, uh, grow and expand and meet the needs of New Yorkers in the way that uh, New Yorkers expected. And so when this new product came along, Uber and Lyft and these four hire vehicle companies, it became very, very popular to have it more on demand for many New Yorkers, especially people of color, to mm-hmm. not be discriminated against because mm-hmm. you're hiring it through your app, so you're not being refused service. And, and it showed that there was a lot of progress that wasn't being made amongst the yellow taxis in New York City. So they were really a market disruptor in many Mm -hmm. ways. But I think the real mistake that we in government made Mm -hmm. was that they were able to explode without 
a smart level of regulation in place mm -hmm. to have them expand, but not explode in a sense where it would overwhelm the streets of New York City, right, destabilize more cars. more cars, destabilize the taxi industry, which actually still is an important thing in New York City. And, you know, there are just too many safety. of them. And safety. And safety. But right. there are too many of them. Mm -hmm. So right now, I believe the latest number is there are 160,000 for-hire vehicles mm -hmm. in New York City that are licensed. And in 2018, so about a year and a half ago, in my first six months as speaker, we became the only city in the United States of America to pass a bill capping the number of licenses. So now we are not giving out any new for-hire vehicle licenses mm -hmm. to Uber and to Lyft because we said there are too many. You flooded the market. You saturated the market. Mm -hmm. The streets are clogged and jammed, and we need to figure out a better way to grow. And it became a real flashpoint. These companies, of course, were very, very much against it, spent millions of dollars in advertising, opposing the work that we did at the council. And I'm proud that we got it done. I kind of feel like we should have done it two or three years earlier mm -hmm. before it exploded in the way that it did. They are a good option for, for New Yorkers, especially in places where the yellow and green taxis don't go to and where the subway service is really bad. But it is not the solution to actually a long-term solution for transit in New York City, partially because their economic model is not sustainable. And the privatization. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the, it's the same thing around public school. It's the idea that, that everything should be privatized and then they'll recoup. Now, they may be able to do it better by uh, doing bus routes that are popular and because there's some of those going on in China. There's all kinds of experiments going around around the privatization of transportation. And I was telling you, I didn't, you didn't know about this, but Uber had announced a, a, a drone, a people drone, that would carry people from the tops of skyscrapers. And then you go down in the elevator. I know you're making a face. It's so weird. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. It's interesting. It would make a trip from Brooklyn to here so quick, like seconds. Right? How much it's, is it? It depends. It, I, you don't know. But anyway, it's like an is, interesting— Like, is there a way to make that affordable for the average person? So There's many, lots of them. If there are lots of them. Yeah, and that's, of course, a whole—you know, New York has issues around things flying in the air above it. Because Uber just announced yeah. uh, two months ago here <laughs> in Lower Manhattan where mm -hmm. we're filming, where we're taping this podcast— that they ha now are running uh, Uber helicopters. Right, they do those, yeah. From Lower Manhattan to JFK. Right. It takes eight minutes. Right. And the cost is like $200 a person. Right, yes, they are expensive. And that's not, but it's also not good for so, the environment. So when you think about what a city is, like, I want to get off transportation okay. and get to other things, but when you think about what a city is, autonomous cars are really where it's going, this idea of that. Have you all thought of that into your plans? Because that's, you know, 20 years' time, you know, when Elon Musk was just talking about talking Teslas the other day, like, that would talk to you, like, excuse me, pedestrian, get out of my way. I'm going to move. How do you look at the idea of autonomous cars, which can be more efficient, which don't clog necessarily, although there'll be lots of them, but they move in a very organized way because they're algorithmically based? I think that's exciting and interesting and something that— Hopefully, other cities that are smaller than New York City can test, it first. Can test first and yeah. see what works. And then that would be a roadmap for the largest city in the United States of America. And hopefully that this master plan bill that we just talked about, once it goes into effect and we start reshaping our city streets and reorienting our city streets, they will be rebuilt in a way that actually makes it safer for potentially automated cars right. and the number of people that would be using them and would be affected who are walking the streets. The, the highest number of, of people in New York City are pedestrians. Right. So how do you make the streets safer for 
pedestrians. Automated cars may be the best way to actually do that because of the sensors and the cameras on mm-hmm. them. Uh, but I don't think we as a city have planned for anything like that. Yeah. Just getting this bill over the hump right. was a huge— And then public transit— and public transit. Paying for the refurbishment of these. That This is an ongoing fight that you've all had with each other. Well, the MTA, the yeah. Metropolitan Transit Authority, which runs the subways and the buses <laughs> and Long Island Railroad and Metro <laughs> North and the Triborough <laughs> Bridge Tunnel Authority, I call it Frankenstein's monster of transit subsidiaries. <laughs> it was created in the late 1960s when Governor Rockefeller took the subways and buses away from Mayor Lindsay. And we've been living under this dysfunctional model ever since. The MTA... Uh, a month and a half ago, voted on their largest capital plan ever, which is $51 billion. Mm-hmm. So a $51 billion capital plan to invest into the subways and the buses and a huge chunk of that money, almost $15 billion out of the $51 billion, is going to come from congestion pricing. Mm-hmm. And so we are going to implement congestion pricing here mm-hmm. in New York City, just like London has. Right. It's going to go into effect on January 1st of next year, mm-hmm. January 1st, 2021. Which is how much? Which is what? How much is it? It's so this is the crazy thing, Kara. The panel that was set up to determine that, what the price is, what the exemptions are if you're mm-hmm. a low-income person or someone with a disability, right. they haven't determined any of that. So the legislation, the state legislature enacted said that a six-member panel will be impaneled in November of 2020, this year. A year before, or six, three months. Six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks before it goes into effect. It will be impaneled. After the November state elections here, Mm -hmm. but before the implementation date on January 1st, 2021, and that six-person board will determine what the cost is, where the gantries are and the Mm -hmm. sensors are, uh, what the exemptions are on income for people with disabilities. And so even though it's going to go into effect, it was set up in such a way— which car is allowed in. Exactly. So we don't know yet. That's a disaster. Yeah, it's a disaster. I just got back from—I was in London uh, in November. How they did congestion. And I I met with them. I met with the the mayor's office there. I met with Transport for London, and they said to me, you guys are way behind the curve. You need to be way out in front of this. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to the idea. The area you you represent, Times Square, Hudson Hudson Square, uh, and Hell's Kitchen, this is an area that the Times just wrote a story about, which is about tech becoming a big boon there. Now, you all have the media industry, you have the financial industry, and creative. Broadway and things like that, art. It's always been said that it's going to be Silicon Alley. It's going to do it, and it never has, really. It's sort of reached there and then never has gotten— you don't have—you know, we'll get to Amazon in a minute, but you have big concentrations for Google. They have the Chelsea area. You've got Amazon coming here anyway without having to pay the subsidies that they were supposed to get, but they didn't need them, apparently, because they're coming in quite strong. Facebook's coming here. Facebook's coming there um, into Hudson. Uh, Right next to uh, Madison Square Garden. Right, exactly. On top of So they're coming here anywhere. And, you know, one of the arguments I had with Dave Faber on CNBC, it was interesting, because people called me a socialist. I'm like, you don't need to give them money to come to New York. You might need to give them money to come to Kansas City, or you might need, or, or some city in Ohio that really needs economic development. But why should New York pay anybody to come to a city? If they want to be in New York, they want to hang out here, this is New York, they don't have to pay for it. And it was really interesting because I got called a socialist. I'm like, I'm saying don't give rich people subsidies. Don't do corporate giveaways. It was interesting. It was an interesting debate. And then Dave was arguing that you need to have these people here to create. How do you look at New York as a tech hub in general? Well, One of the figures I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation Mm -hmm. was that since the 
recession in 2009, we've seen organically yeah. 780,000 private sector jobs created and less than 1% of those jobs are created with any level of abatement mm-hmm. or subsidy. And I think one of the ways to attract businesses and to people to mm-hmm. New York City or to cities in general is number one, you have to keep crime low so people feel safe moving to the city. Number two, you need to invest in schools so that families feel like they can move to the city and raise right. their kids there. And number three, you need to invest in good public spaces, parks and streets, as we've talked about, and public transportation. If you do those three things, people will come to your city. And so in a 10-year period— And regulation. And regulation. In terms of business creation. But in that 10-year period, we've seen that number of jobs with very, very little subsidy. So the conversation around Amazon was disappointing in so many ways because I guess I feel like we sort of lost the PR battle on it. Mm -hmm. I was very critical of the deal. Mm -hmm. I came under a lot of fire for it. Mm -hmm. And my perspective was Amazon should come to New York City. Mm -hmm. Come. But just like the European Union doesn't Mm -hmm. allow these competitions uh, Mm -hmm. of countries against each other— we we should not be uh, in this business of offering these billions of dollars in incentives and to subsidies. To the world's richest man. It was the amazing. world's was richest like, man. Don't be a dancing monkey for the world's richest man. And it's not <laughs> even just that. Stop. It's also, it's also the, I think the bigger issue here mm-hmm. is it's, it's precedential. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by yeah. that is you have Google, which has created 10,000 jobs in Chelsea mm-hmm. in a little more than a decade, and yep. they've received zero subsidy. You have Facebook that's coming and creating thousands of jobs. Twitter has come. You have the smaller startups that have come, none of those people are getting large subsidies. So if you gave Amazon this uh, tailored package, Mm -hmm. custom fit tailored package, in five years, why wouldn't J.P. Morgan Chase say, we want to create a thousand jobs, what are you going to give us? Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs is going to say, what are you going to give us? Fake's going to say, what are you going to give us? And it'll be a race to the bottom Mm -hmm. where all of these large companies that are actually doing pretty well would say, where's our package? Tailor something for us. That is not what we need to do as a city. What we need to do as a city is actually, I think, the way to become that tech incubator that you mentioned Mm -hmm. on the East Coast is you need to be a city that's smart about the things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Are you a city that's smart about transportation? Are you a city that is a creative capital for artists and actors and coders and, and gamers? Academics. And academics. I mean, Stanford's such a critical part of what's happened in Stanford and Berkeley, really, but Stanford for the most part. Do you have that? I mean, talk about Roosevelt Island. I well, mean, that's what, what, I was just going to say that before you said it. It was the Cornell Technion site. Yeah, which has been okay. Yeah, I think it's actually good. Okay. Tell me why you say okay. It's just not like, you know what I mean? I don't think you can create a tech excitement place. I think it just, I think these things happen. Just like right now, everybody's moving into San Francisco despite all the problems because young people want to live there and these companies are there and we'll see how it goes because they aren't creating a great place to live and they're not serving all their citizens, including the homeless. Everybody's everybody's at a disadvantage in that city. It's not good for the kids. It's not good for the taxpayers. It's not good for the homeless people who are treated like animals. They shouldn't be living like that. And by the way, city streets shouldn't be like that. They shouldn't be able to live on those streets. And so it's a really interesting problem and it does hinder development. It does absolutely. So I don't, you know, I don't know, but I don't think you can just decide this is, I've seen cities do it over and over again, create a tech, this is our tech hub 
And it just doesn't gel like that. And in in New York, I think specifically, it's a little different. It it could be good to put an anchor down Mm -hmm. on Roosevelt Island like we did, but you saw Google come into Chelsea and take their building almost 10 years ago, and now they're expanding. Facebook is taking the space on top of the new Moynihan train station, Mm -hmm. which is opening up next year. Twitter has taken space in a different part of the city. Uh, You had JetBlue, which opened up. They're not tech, but But they they opened— They are. So they opened up uh, their big site— out in Queens and Long Island mm-hmm. City almost a decade ago. And I think some of it is organic. It doesn't need to be where they actually go. It needs to be, is the city an attractive city where their employees are going to want to live and raise a family and send their kids to school and have transportation that works for them and have affordable small businesses? Will those things exist? Well, I'm interested in how you create big tech companies here like you do. Like all of them are, happen to be on the West Coast of this country. A lot of them do. You look, there's in Seattle, there's Amazon and Microsoft um, and several others. Netflix is, they're in Silicon Valley. There's a one or two down in Los Angeles, one or two in Austin, and some here, but a lot of the ones have flamed out here. And a lot of them are media-oriented, like Vox, where we are right now. Mm-hmm. There's BuzzFeed and others, but they're, you know, they're, there's the content is not the best place to be right now from a digital point of view. So how do you create the next Facebook somewhere? Where's it could be anywhere. It's right now in China and with TikTok and others. But how do you is is that the role of government to do that? Well, I, I think government, we are not usually, very, very rarely, the folks that are the most creative mm-hmm. when it comes to figuring out what the next good idea is. Mm-hmm. I think the balance is creating an economy and a regulatory framework that allows that entrepreneurship, that allows that level of growth, that mm-hmm. allows there to be a place where people are able to come together, live in an affordable way, have space to actually build their business get the investment and the capital that they need to build something up in that environment. And that's where I think New York is really challenging because it is so unaffordable to live here, almost as bad as San Francisco, where 19% of New Yorkers, one in five people living here, is living below the federal poverty line. Tonight in the shelter system, there are 78,000 New Yorkers sleeping in a shelter, 27,000 of whom are children under the age of 18 years old. And you have all the other issues we talked about public transit falling apart before our very eyes, public housing crumbling. So when you have these very large-scale problems, Mm -hmm. I think it becomes more difficult to attract those type of businesses. But then on the flip side is you have had, even in the midst of all those problems, you've had all that organic job growth, those 780,000 private sector jobs, 67 million tourists still visiting New York City last year, even with the problems that we have. They were all in Times Square on Saturday. They were all in Times Square. Trying to get by them. I think that that's... What we need to do as New Yorkers, and I'm going to talk about this during my campaign for mayor, is you need to be... You need to do, I think, two things. It's nice to say you want to remain a globally competitive city, and New York has been one of the leaders internationally on doing good things. But for New Yorkers, they don't really give a shit about that, about being a globally competitive city. New Yorkers are like— Get the trash picked up and get the subways moving. Mm -hmm. Get the schools working. You need to invest in things that improve New Yorkers' quality of life. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then people come. 
businesses come, startups come, uh, young families come. That's what you will have happen. But if you remain a city that locks out those type of people and is hostile to entrepreneurship and to the creative spirit, then it becomes a lot harder. Yeah, that's an issue we face in San Francisco, I think. Okay, we're here with, uh, I don't know why you want to run for mayor, Corey, then. Um, we're going to explain <laughs> that when we get back. We're here with Corey Johnson. He's the speaker of the New York City Council. We'll get back, we're going to talk about his run for mayor and also politics right now, what it's like to be in politics, especially with social media and political ads. Uh, when we get back. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. We're here with Corey Johnson. He's the speaker of the New York City Council. He's also someone I've known for 20 years, if I, if I can't believe it, or 25 maybe. Um, so talk to me a little bit about why you want to be a politician today. Why? What is it like to be a politician today? Because, you know, with social media, obviously the tabloids here are a whole different thing. You're a little closer to Britain in that regard. It doesn't exist most places in the country. But we bec- everything has become tabloidy with social media, really, right? Everything is instant, fast, probably badly sourced, but goes around very quickly. And if you're someone like me who has a little bit of an anxious side, mm-hmm. it's even more challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've tried to, I've been very open about my struggles in mm-hmm. life. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, as we talked about, I'm openly gay. Mm-hmm. I'm the only openly HIV positive elected official in the state of New York. Mm-hmm. I talk very regularly about my sobriety and recovery. I've been sober for uh, this July. I'll be 11 years sober from mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol. And one of the big lessons I learned in early sobriety is that I've tried to carry with me is you are only as sick as your secrets. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be sick, so I don't have any secrets. So I live my life in a very transparent way. But that's also, some of it might be being a millennial. So that's what happened to Anthony years. Weiner, but go ahead. Some of it is I'm 37 years old, so right. I'm a millennial. Right. The other part of it is that I think voters and people in general crave authenticity Mm -hmm. and not contrived authenticity, not stupid stuff, but they want someone that they relate to that they think is real. And so I think the balancing act of showing who you really are while also not being TMI, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. When I started dating my boyfriend this summer, Mm -hmm. five weeks into our relationship, we were at his apartment one night and I was laying on the couch and it was really, really hot outside and he was shirtless, just wearing a pair of shorts, standing by the window looking at something. And I took a photo of him. He didn't know I was taking his photo. Uh, I eventually showed him the photo before I posted it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I posted it on Instagram and like the internet like blew up mm-hmm. by saying like, what the hell is the speaker doing posting a photo of his shirtless boyfriend mm-hmm. on Instagram? It's inappropriate. Did he look good? He looked fantastic. All right. We, I get it. The gays get it. But go ahead. Move along. But I became <laughs> so anxious that next day when everything blew up. I thought, oh my God, I made such a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. I'm a Sharon, so I'm good with you. But go ahead. You're a what? A Sharon. You don't know. When you have kids. When you have kids. My my kids call me a Sharon. A Sharon. Yeah, I am. So, but it's hard because you try to figure out like, is that too much? Am I just 
why am I doing this? Well, you got this? Trump, so no, it's not. Well, you that's just, true. You do it by Trump. But but when you're be- in politics today, it's changed irreparably because of Trump and what he's oh done on gosh. Twitter. And yeah, it's not just the policies, but the the way things— The discourse. The discourse, how campaigning and governing is done via social media. He really is, you know, using it as, as a campaigning and a governing vehicle. He's a very sick, sick, I think, sociopath who has— <laughs> destroying the world and the United States of America and is a racist and the list goes on. But he's I think good at Twitter. he's good at Twitter and mm-hmm. he's good at riling up his base. Mm-hmm. So how do you look at when you have these social media, the impact of these social media companies? Because one of the things, if you're maybe in New York, this is not something you'll deal with necessarily, but there's a lot of discussion about regulation and there's a lot of state privacy laws happening in California that just came online. Uh, the first very big privacy law in California, which is not being implemented until July, I think, but it's confusing as heck. You're getting letters from everybody. What does it do? I lots of things. Lots, <laughs> lots of, things. of things. But if you get different letters, you, you probably have gotten them and you haven't looked at them from all your various apps and things like that. And I think one of the questions is, is as states start to roll these things out— and some cities, actually, too, because San Francisco is doing stuff around facial surveillance. Yes, we're looking at that here. Yeah. It becomes, like, who decides what our tech should be? Like, who's going to legislate this stuff? Federal government has stayed rather far away from legislating anything. Which is problematic. Right. You know, and I think that's one of the attractive things about what— I haven't endorsed anyone for president, Mm -hmm. but I think it's one of the attractive things that Elizabeth Warren has Mm -hmm. talked about, which is these large social media and media companies that are monopolistic in some ways and control so much of the discourse and the information that people receive across this country, they do need to be regulated in a more strict way. Privacy is an important component, but also the monopolistic nature of e-commerce and what happens there as well. And I think we're really behind the curve on Mm -hmm. that. And municipalities actually have very little say. Mm-hmm. We're, we're affected by these companies in such a huge way, especially those of us in office mm-hmm. who have to navigate this right. uh, terrain politically for ourselves and personally, and we really have no say. What it's are, all in action at the federal level. What are you more scared of as a politician now, social media or tabloids? You know, I am afraid that I'm going to rashly tweet something stupid Mm -hmm. or reply to someone on Twitter who's sort of trolling me Mm -hmm. and kind of get into a fight. Okay, I'll stop. No, not you. (laughs) But you know what's interesting? And maybe I don't know if you agree with this or not, but what I have found as an elected official is that when you use Twitter— Facebook and Instagram, you're basically reaching three different audiences and you talk to them in three different ways. There's no downside for me getting into a fight on Twitter, but go ahead. There's no downside for you. No. No. None. It's all upside, actually, in a weird way. Because it brings more attention? uh, It's If you do it right, yeah. It's interesting. I guess Trump does that too. Yeah, he's excellent at it. I, I have to say, of all the only that's the only compliment I can pay him. He's really good at it, and he really gets it. I wrote a column actually about how he was good at it in a visceral sense, except he's a broadcast outer, which is the is the old way. You broadcast out towards people, and then you you don't react. He doesn't. And uh, someone like Ocasio is a she. She speaks the language, and she goes back and forth. She works it in a very different way. They're both quite good at it in their own. You know, the question is how much good can come of it. Now, Trump has used it rather effectively. We had a question today on our pivot, which was, who's more powerful, his tweets or Congress, which can't really stop him from doing the things Mm, he's doing? That's interesting. 
They they keep saying, we have laws, and he just rolls right over them, just the way he rolled over Paul Ryan, the way he rolls over pretty much everybody. And so it's an interesting trend, if you're a politician, is what happens, do you have to be that person, especially if you're in the city of New York, do you have to be like that as a politician? Well, I think, and I'm probably not the best person to (laughs) speak about this, but I I think that, um, because I'm not uh, objective, (laughs) I have— really tried to use social media just to show my personality mm-hmm. and to kind of, I lip sync on uh, Instagram mm-hmm. and I tweet uh, me dancing down the streets mm-hmm. and I Facebook live. Which is you. Which is me. Right. And and I think I've been able to connect with New Yorkers mm-hmm. in a way that people have really appreciated, but I'm less good and I haven't engaged in that sort of hand-to-hand combat aspect. Mm-hmm. It's been more... I talk about the issues of the day, and, but I'm not engaging in sort of the the warfare on mm-hmm. social media. It's more just trying to, like, show the personal side of me outside of government and politics and that I'm a real human being just like everyone else. So how then in this environment where it does get the partisanship and it's, it shows itself up on Twitter of all places because they're all there, the media— the politicians of both sides and Trump. So it creates the, you know, all over. The, and it, it it plays itself out in every city in the country yes. like this. Like every city in the country has this dynamics and it has it, it has it here. How do you get to policy then? How do you get people back to thinking about that without being in this twitchy, immediate culture? You know what's interesting is I think that those of us in elected office and maybe even sometimes in the media overstate the number of people outside of Trump, who is the president of the United States, who on the local level, even on the state level, we think that everyone reads Twitter. Mm -hmm. It's a very small subset of people. And the vast majority of New Yorkers are getting their news from the nightly news they watch on the three major broadcast stations Mm -hmm. or New York One here in New York City and the daily papers, the New York Times and the tabloids. And that's how the vast majority, a lot of people are consuming the news just by the New York Times app Mm -hmm. by reading it on their phones. Well, they're at Facebook actually is Facebook. the biggest contributor to distribution of news in the country right now. Facebook in, in, in New York? I don't know about New York. I'd have to look in New York. But in general? In Facebook. general. Because when I go around, when I talk to New Yorkers, like, a lot of them are paying attention to what's happening on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that but w- social media as a whole, that's what I'm, you know, how they get information. But, but the most, the, like, the most, like, right. ratcheted up stuff yeah. is always yeah. on Twitter. Right, right. Less on Facebook, more on Twitter, at least for me. And so I have to, like, remember all the time, like, not all people are on there engaging mm-hmm. in that or even watching mm-hmm. what's going on. So you need to focus on the nuts and bolts of what matter to people, sort of those bread and butter issues, mass transit, education, housing, homelessness, the affordability crisis, the mm-hmm. environment, all of those things that are ha- economic development, jobs that are happening in New York, and not worry exactly what's happening on Twitter, but tell your message through the broader media. Some of it's on social media, but some of it's through traditional media as well. So let's finish up talking about a few things. You mentioned housing, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Brian Chesky's a calm guy. When he talks about New York... Who, what's the name? Brian Chesky. Okay. CEO oh, of Oh, yeah, Airbnb. CEO of Airbnb, yeah. He gets irritated, agitated. I never see him at Only about New York. How do you look at these things? Because housing is also changing. How we live, where we live, rents, everything. How we build houses how we construct them. Right now, housing is artisanal, the way we do housing. It should be done in a much more efficient, technological way. Mm-hmm. 
and they are doing that again across the world. How do you look at Airbnb, which sort of revolutionized the idea of housing? So in New York, I think there's a real split amongst the public. Mm-hmm. You have New Yorkers, uh, which is a very small slice, who actually Airbnb their apartments out and make a good amount of income from that, which is good for them. You have New Yorkers who don't rent their apartments out in New York, but when they travel around the world, they use Airbnb Mm -hmm. when they're in other cities, so they have positive feelings towards Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And then you have New Yorkers who may use Airbnb across the world, but here in New York City, when their neighbor is Airbnb-ing their apartment and strangers are coming in and out of the building mm-hmm. and there's a lockbox locked to the— Hundreds of them. Hundreds of them locked yeah, to the like railing. it's like bridge in France, some places. And people are bringing yeah. their gigantic suitcases up and down the stairs and making noise and housing is so expensive here that you are paying, you know, $3,000 a month for a studio and you're thinking, why the heck is the apartment next to me? People are coming in and out, making noise. I don't know who these people are in my building, that there's actually a backlash in some ways, mm-hmm. where a lot of New Yorkers are like, I don't want Airbnb in my building. I like using Airbnb when I go to Austin or mm-hmm. when I go to London, but I don't want it in my building. I don't want people not coming in, in and out. Not in my backyard. Not in my backyard so which building. which one are you? Well, I have real concerns about Airbnb. I think, number one, uh, we have affordable housing crisis in New York City right now. And I mentioned those 78,000 people that are homeless in New York City. And what we have seen over the last two years with some pretty in-depth investigations here is that there are not all, but there are a select number of really bad actors and landlords that are literally warehousing apartments, taking them off the market, especially lower income apartments, and they are just basically building illegal hotels that are just Airbnb uh, people coming in and out over and over and over again. That is not sustainable for New York City. It's not what we need right now. And I think what we need to figure out is a way to increase the amount of housing and also figure out a way to to regulate Airbnb, but not in the way that they want. They want us basically to say people can do what they want in their apartments across New York City, collect taxes from us, and let us expand. That is not what's going to happen yeah, here in New York. Yeah, the collect taxes is one of their biggest excuses sometimes. It's one of their biz- biggest excuses. You don't but mind they, that? You don't mind. They should be giving taxes. They should be giving taxes, but right. the real big issue here is like, name a single person that wants all the apartments in their building being Airbnb. No one. So, so how do you balance there, that? There are accusations that the hotel, that one hotel guy, the, the, the hotel lobbies are so strong on politicians like you and others that that's what's really driving the conversation. I don't think that's true. I would say that the union here, which represents the hotel workers, right. the Hotel Trades Council, uh, they are a politically potent and powerful union. But I think they're, they're only 30,000 members, 35,000 members. They're mm-hmm. not. All the other unions are much bigger than them. The reason why I think elected officials feel good about them is not because of campaign contributions. That has nothing to do with it. It more has to do with they're able to secure a good contract for these lower income, predominantly women of color in New York City, or a housekeeper or a maid or someone who works at a banquet hall is actually able to make it into the middle class in mm-hmm. New York City and provide for themselves and for their families. Airbnb does not allow that for these type of folks who wouldn't qualify for those type of jobs. Even if Airbnb did have uh, unionized uh, cleaners, mm-hmm. they're not going to be making the same amount of money that people are making in hotels. The hotel industry has created a real middle class workforce in New York City when so many other sectors so across the city. What's the solution? 
I don't know. I mean, ultimately, the city of New York, just like on a whole host of issues, whether it's our taxes, whether it is the rent laws, whether it's the MTA, we ultimately don't have authority on it. What do I mean mm-hmm. by that? Albany is the one that created the regulatory framework for Airbnb by amending what's called the multiple dwellings law, mm-hmm. which says what can happen in buildings with apartments. And that was done before Airbnb really exploded and took off. It happened about 10 years ago. And that happened because there were actually illegal hotels that were going up all across New York City pre-Airbnb. Right. And people said there's a problem, there's a safety issue here mm-hmm. that we need to figure out. And those regulations were put in place. Airbnb has gone back to the state legislature in Albany every single year, lobbying the state legislature to change the multiple dwelling law. And the state legislature has been unwilling to do so. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't believe they've been unwilling to do so because of the hotel union. I think they've been unwilling to do so because tenants all across New York City who don't even think about hotels or hotel jobs, again, say, my quality of life and my building and the lack of affordable housing, I don't want my building being be turned into an illegal Whoever the mayor of New York is? No. Well, I think the city of New York should have a lot more power on a lot of things, on taxes, mm-hmm. on schools, on transportation. So Tunnel. On tunnels. Uh, we need the gateway tunnel mm-hmm. uh, for Amtrak. But do I think Albany's going to cede that to us anytime soon? No. All right. Last question. Running for mayor. It, I'm going to ask you a tech-related question, but what's the one thing you'd like to see, even a crazy thing, in New York from a tech point of view? If you had to, like, is it is it the better streets for eventually autonomous parking? Is it um, education that's done remotely to improve schools? Is there some, like, pie-in-the-sky idea you have as as someone who's running for mayor of New York? I think we really need to focus on um, the young people who, mm-hmm. who live here and are growing up here. And so we've seen how successful STEM programming is and STEAM programming is. There's a great organization called Girls Who Code, mm-hmm. which teaches young women how to code and actually get a job. We've on the podcast yeah, many um, To get people in that workforce and do that type of development. There are 275,000 students who are CUNY students, City of New York students, mm-hmm. which is one of the crown jewels of New York City. And I think one of the things we need to do is is create the level of job training and education to actually hopefully have some of those young entrepreneurs start those small businesses here Mm -hmm. that you talked about, to have the great next tech company come from a young New Yorker who grew up in New York City, who got a good education here and who were able to get it done. I think focusing on that Mm -hmm. is really, really key. The other stuff about- Foursquare was going to do it. Foursquare was going to do it. They're still doing well, Foursquare. Yeah, yeah, but they didn't They kind of changed their business model. Where it didn't become Facebook. Yeah, they yeah. Facebook. Yeah. So I think that's what we need to to do. And then on the other stuff, there is a huge amount of uh, what I've been told. I haven't spent enough time studying it. There's been a huge amount of artificial intelligence technology yeah. that's been exploding in New York City, yes. actually from local New York companies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know enough about it, but I think that in a city this complicated, can you figure out a better way to get rid of garbage. Mm -hmm. Can you actually... Which Bloomberg was trying to do that in in an interesting way, like trying to get ideas and things. There was this great idea a couple of years ago. I know we have to finish. This great idea a couple of years ago of actually running a tube Mm -hmm. all along the high line, underneath the high line, Mm -hmm. and the tube would go into all the buildings attached to the Mm -hmm. high line, Mm -hmm. and people would put their garbage in the tube, Mm -hmm. and it would... This is what they have in Roosevelt Island. Right. Everyone puts their garbage in a tube in their building, Mm -hmm. and it sucks it into a main compartment on Roosevelt Island. Yeah. 
Are there interesting things that it's we could— Hyperloop. Hyperloop. Hyper, Elon Musk wants to build tunnels under cities. Why not have—why not dig under New York and put all the trucks there? What do you think about like that? Like the big dig in Boston. You can't no, do no, it no, here no, because of the subway trucks. tunnels. Just trucks. The subway tunnels. That's how you deliver someday. That's the idea. Elon's building uh, hyper tunnels. Figure out a way to do it in New York City. It He's sounds great. He's doing one in Los Angeles, digging one out. We need— Less tunnels, more mass transit that works. Right. So you're not going for hyper, but hyperloop. That's that is the idea behind hyperloop. There are these big tubes, and eventually they'll move people around. This sounds like the Jetsons. Yes, they'll move yeah. people around in these tubes, and then I, I was always like, well, the human body has a problem with going at hyperspeeds. Um, Elon, Elon Musk's Twitter scares me. <laughs> Does it? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. it's a little weird. I know, but he's just he's what he is. What I don't I have no I I don't know what to tell you. It is what it is. It is what it he is. He builds a nice car. He, he builds a nice car. He builds a, a nice Tesla. car. He builds a nice rocket. Uh, okay. He didn't save those divers in— uh, He didn't. No. He's not, he's not the Iron Man. I'm sorry to report to everybody. And he said he was going to. Yes, but <laughs> he, just, he builds a nice car. That's all I have to say about Elon He gives Musk. to Republicans, which isn't great. He does a lot of things. I don't know what to say. He, he thinks he can change people's ideas. He does. He's one of those people. Yeah. Silicon Valley is full of those people. And I'm always like, listen, Jesus, you're not going to change anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's not well, going to happen. Well, change to a degree. It depends uh, on the degree. Uh, you know like what? some of these companies have really changed things. I know they've tricked you into thinking that they're saints, but they are just rich people. Oh, like yeah. Else. They're trying to make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, they are. They yeah. like the money, and uh, and that's the way it's going to be. I always joke to them. There's, I'm, I'm you're so poor, all you have is money. Is my favorite line. <laughs> you may use it in your mayoral campaign um, as you take money from bankers and others. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, Corey, good luck on your uh, your campaign. I think it's great. I'm not taking I more than two hundred fifty dollars a person. You aren't. Oh, you're doing the Elizabeth I'm Warren Bernie Sanders small, thing. The legal limit here is two thousand. I'm taking one eighth of the legal limit. I'm the first person to ever run for mayor oh, to do this, and I'm not taking money from real estate developers. You know, it I'm works. Not taking money from corporate PACs. And I'm not taking money from lobbyists. All right. So it's made it a lot more challenging. It's interesting, and the internet is a way to do that now because yes. you really can reach voters in a lot of ways. Well, I, I will vote for you, Corey, Thank but I don't you. vote in New York, but I appreciate your running. I would like to know Mayor Corey rather Thank than you. Speaker Corey. All right, but I'm very impressed, by the way, with having met you when you were 17 years old. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on fun. the show. It was thank fun. You. We're yeah. going to hang out. Come back to New York City. I'm coming to Gracie Move Mansion, here. my yeah. friend. Move oh, into I'm Gracie coming Mansion. to Gracie. You know, Bloomberg never invited me. I, knew, I know Bloomberg. I never, not one invitation. De Blasio was like, call me, never heard if from I him. If I win, you're coming I'm and you're going to invite some fun people to Fun dinner. people to Gracie Mansion. And then it'll be over I'm for you because sure Elon Musk a, can come. I'll bring him on. <laughs> Okay. I'll bring Mark Cuban. He's a lot more fun. Mark Cuban, yeah, he's I will fun. Bring, I think he's gonna run for president. He, I'll bring Mark Cuban. Okay, All right, Mark, I'm gonna, I'm gonna text you later. We're Hi, going, Mark. We're going come. to Gracie Mansion if Corey wins. I hope the All basketball right. team's doing well. I don't know anything about that. Okay, you can follow me on Twitter at. I told you I'm the only lesbian in America who hates sports. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer Erica Anderson is at Erica America. My producer Eric Johnson is at Hey Hey ESJ. Corey, where can people find you and your I campaign? I am online? at Corey C O R E Y. I-N-N-Y-C. Corey in oh, that's NYC. A good one. Yes. That's a good one you got. Yeah. Okay. And your campaign? Anything? www.coreyfornyc.com. Okay. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.